it's funny, this was more, I was telling the 9 o'clock service, I, I couldn't tell last night because it hadn't happened yet, but I was telling the 9 o'clock, so I was working out this morning early, and I think I got the idea for the next series. People keep asking me, how long is this going to go, what's next? I don't know, it's like I don't make this stuff up, and uh, I'm working out in the middle of it, it's like it's coming to me, I still need to pray, but I'm really excited, but I can't tell you because I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, we'll be in this till like September, I know that at least, because we got a lot more to go, but uh, I'm excited to start getting prepared for the next one. So, hey, we're going to go into our time of teaching today. If it's your very first time here, welcome. We are so glad you're here. Uh, we do this every week, and so inside your program is a green and white note sheet. We keep the same colors, not to confuse you. Uh, so you can take that out, and we're going to take some notes, and there's some quotes there, and you'll, you'll definitely be helpful to you. So if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yeah. All right, let's pray. God, we're just so excited about this epic journey that you have us on, uh, this amazing story that there was a time before time when you kind of dreamed up this whole creation, and you have a vision to bring it all under the leadership, to healed and renewed under its true king, and that as we come to you, that we actually play an important role in this. And so, God, as we talk, continue to talk about what it looks like to live it out in everyday life, live out this epic vision, we pray you'd meet us and heal us and break every chain like we've been singing. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Our story starts today. It's about 9.30 at night. And she's been on a business trip to the East Coast. And she decides to come home a day early and surprise him. And so she drives up in her SUV, turns off the engine, gets out, quietly shuts the door because she wants it to be a surprise. She takes her keys out of her purse, walks to the front door, slowly inserts him, turns the lock because it always makes a little noise, opens the door and comes in, and the house is strangely dark. The kids are in bed. That's to be expected, but she's not sure where her husband is. He normally would be up. And she walks down the hallway she sees a faint glow coming from the back bedroom. The door is closed. It's too early for him to be in bed. And so she comes in so excited to surprise him. And what she sees next will be emblazoned on her mind for the rest of her life. She'll never forget what she sees when she opens that door. It's like it's written with an indelible ink on her heart. It's like a mental tattoo she will never be able to remove. Because as she opens the door... She sees her husband making love to another woman. In the weeks and the months that follow, her life becomes a blur. She ends up at locations, can't remember a thing of how she got there. The pain is overwhelming. Her young kids ask her why she's crying all the time. There's no way she can explain. They're just too young to understand. It's so hard to stay focused at work. Her mind just locks in on that night. Her husband, for his part, is thoroughly repentant. He's come back and he's broken up with this woman and he said he's so sorry for what he's done. He's willing to do anything to make it right. He offers to go to counseling. He promises it will never happen again. He'll do anything to win back her trust and yet she's not having it. She is so angry. She is so wounded. She is so hurt. All she can see and think about is revenge. He has hurt her deeply. And she's made up her mind that she is going to make him pay. 
Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in from the start of the year. For those of you who are brand new, first time here, it's a series called Epic. It's a study based on a letter from a man that we call the Apostle Paul to a group of Jesus followers, Christ followers, uh, in, the, in the early first century, about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. They live in the vicinity of one of the major cities of the ancient world. It was called Ephesus. And it was a quarter of a million people. It was the capital of a major Roman province. Today, it would be in the area of Turkey. And in this letter, Paul is sharing with these new Christ followers this epic vision that God has for all of creation. And what he says is, believe it or not, when we come to Jesus, that we've actually been chosen before time begins to play an important role in bringing all of creation healed and restored under the leadership of King Jesus that we've been gifted, and we have a part to play. It's an important part. So for three chapters, Paul lays out this vision, and so we call that first series epic, The Vision. In chapter 4 through 6, then, Paul begins to get really practical. What does it look like to live out that epic vision in everyday life? And he's called the epic living the vision. And so for the last seven weeks, we've been in this section that starts at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, It goes to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, where Paul says, if we're going to live out this epic vision, we're going to have to learn to rethink our whole approach to life. We're going to have to put off the old, put on the new. We're going to enter in the school of Jesus, let him teach us. We're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so we can become the people we are created to be, like our creator again, so we have the capacity to live out this epic vision. And then he gives us six examples of what it looks like to put off the old, put on the new. I told you at the beginning of this series that that this was going to be very challenging stuff. And that if every week we came, we're listening to the Holy Spirit, we're willing to put off the old and put on the new, at the end of the seven weeks, we would be different people. Well, here we are. And so the first six weeks we talked about, uh, he gave us examples of integrity. Here's what it's like to put off the old, put on the new, in the area of integrity. Here's an example of anger. The third week we talked about our whole approach to work and, and generosity. Remember, working to give. The fourth example was the power of words. The fifth example was learning to listen and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And then last week we started this sixth and final topic, which was this topic of forgiveness. And if you were here, we began to unpack the passage. We read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 through chapter 5, verse 2, where Paul basically says, one of the things we're going to have to put off if we're going to be rethink our lives and become like God again, we need to put off our anger and all the negative attitudes and actions that flow out of it, and we're going to have to put on instead a compassion and kindness, and we're going to have to learn how to forgive when people hurt us, when they violate us, when injustice is done. We're going to have to learn to respond, uh, not with anger, but with forgiveness, like God has done in our relationship with him. And so then last week, after walking through the passage, I laid out four big picture principles to understand why, impo- why forgiveness is so important in our lives and what it is and what it isn't. And so what I want to do today is go back and do a quick review of those four principles. Now, we don't have time to go into depth 
And so if you weren't here last week, and these are helpful or intriguing, let me just remind you that all our messages are online, both video, podcast, and audio on our website and on iTunes. So if you ever miss, you can pick them up there. But today I don't have time to go into depth, so we're just going to hit them uh, the four quickly. Then we're going to build on them, add two more big picture principles. That'll round out our teaching on forgiveness. And then we're going to get real practical and see if there's someone in your life that you need to forgive, you work through. How do we actually do that? What are some practical steps? So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Forgiveness 101. Now, uh, it was my mistake, but when I gave the notes to be printed off, I intended these first four, all the blanks will be filled in, because we already covered them last week. I forgot to tell them that, and so we're going to have to slow it down a little bit. We're still going to be moving through rapidly, all right? So I'll try to give you time to, to fill in the blanks. But the first thing we looked, we saw last week is that, that when it comes to forgiveness, forgiveness is a non-negotiable. That what we learned last week, if we're going to rethink our lives... If we're going to enter the school of Jesus, be transformed, put off the old, put on the new, become like God so we can live epic lives, that forgiveness is a non-negotiable. That it's not like optional equipment on the Christian life, on the spiritual life. In fact, we look at what Jesus said in Matthew 6 where he said, if you forgive men what they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father won't forgive yours. And so this is a, it's a non-negotiable, right? The second principle went like this that there are no exceptions to rule number one. And we talked about this, that often, even as followers of Jesus, that we often exercise an exception clause when it comes to forgiveness. So we think in general, yeah, I forgive people. I vote for forgiveness. I think forgiveness is a good thing. I see myself as a forgiving person. But when someone's hurt us very deeply, very badly, they've, they've abused our kids, they've uh, betrayed us in some way, they've, they've caused huge harm in our lives, we often, just without thinking, exercise an exception clause. Well, I don't think God would expect me to forgive. And if he does, he doesn't really understand what he's asking. And we saw last week that God does expect us, and he does understand that Jesus went through the worst of abandonment, betrayal, injustice, suffering, and that he, un he does understand. And we learn furthermore, as we'll talk about later today, that these are the cases that are most important for us to forgive if we want to move in the future that God has for us. Number three, the third one we talked about what forgiveness is and isn't, because often we, we have misconceptions. So this one I'll slow down a little to give you time. There's a lot of blanks. But forgiveness is not three things. Three things it's not. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not minimizing. And it's not removing all consequences. We learned it's not, for, from the first one, it's not forgetting. Often we think that if I forgive someone, I forgot it even happened. It's as if it didn't even happen. I don't even remember it. We saw that's not true. We saw that forgiveness is not minimizing. Sometimes we think forgiveness is making little of much. It's like, oh, it wasn't really that bad. They didn't mean to. I don't even think they understood. It's something minimizing it. We saw that, no, that if we're going to forgive something, we have to call it by its true name. If we were betrayed, we were betrayed. If we were lied to, we were lied to. If we were abandoned, we were abandoned. If we were molested, we were molested. If we were assaulted, we were We don't make small of it. You have to call it by its true name if you're truly going to forgive it. And then the third thing, it's not removing all consequences. Just because someone says they're sorry doesn't mean that, hey, okay, you can babysit my kids again. You know? That for saying you're sorry doesn't mean, okay, great, well, then I won't prosecute legally. It doesn't, it doesn't forgiveness and and kind of consequences are two separate things. 
And so we talked about it's not removing all consequences. And so then, we've, number four, then we talked, well, so what is forgiveness? And we saw that at its core, forgiveness is about canceling a debt. There's core that forgiveness is about canceling a debt. And we saw this comes from Jesus. There in your note sheet in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So when someone sins against us, when someone commits an injustice, a violence against us, a betrayal, that they are in our debt morally. And it's core what forgiveness is about is wiping away that debt, wiping it off our books spiritually. We saw that even better, it's like really transferring that debt to God as our collection agency. They're going to wipe it off our books. We turn over to God to collect as he sees fit. We saw that all debts will eventually be paid, uh, that God is a God of justice. We talked about that, uh, but it's transferring it off. And so we said, practically, what does this look like? We said, well, when we forgive someone, we're wiping the debt clean, but practically what it means is it gives up, it means giving up the right to hurt them back. That when we've been hurt, our natural desire is to hurt back, and so it's giving up that right. And so we looked at the quote from Dallas Willard there. We forgive someone of a wrong they have done us when we decide that we will not make them suffer for it in any way. Okay, and so, so last week we just laid some groundwork how important it is. It's a, it's a, it's a non, uh, non-negotiable, there's no exceptions, and here's what it is, and here's what it isn't. Right? So now what I want to do today is, is kind of build on that two more big picture principles, and then we'll get real practical, okay? So number five, the next principle today that's a new one is that forgiveness is a process. So what I mean by this is sometimes when we think of forgiveness, we think that if we've forgiven someone, we should be over it emotionally. So if you meet someone you say, have you forgiven? But when you see the person, you're still angry or upset, they will obviously have forgiven them. Well, the reality is that the decision to cancel the debt can be made in a moment, anytime. And it should be, and we'll talk about that later. So the decision to cancel the debt, the decision to say, I won't hold you responsible, or I won't, pay, I won't make you pay for what you did, that decision can be made in a moment. But the process of healing takes time. And it's much like a physical wound. Like when I was in the summer between fifth and sixth grade, I had a horrendous bicycle accident. Uh, I was uh, racing down a hill. This was back in a day when it was illegal to wear a helmet. (laughs) Because you were obviously a nerd uh, if you did so. Uh, And so... uh, Honestly, my, my cousin and I are painting our house. We ran on a paint thinner. We need to go to some paint thinner. I jump on my Stingray bike, very cool, green, three-speed, banana seat, very awesome. I jump on this, and we take off. And not only do I not have a helmet, I don't have a shirt on. I'm just wearing jeans, right? And so that's how we, that's how we rolled in those days. And so, uh, so anyway, uh, we have this really steep hill. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, they, they, le- they later leveled out the hill. It was so steep. And uh, I'm heading down this at full speed, as fast as I can go, going to a high-speed wobble, my front tire. Last thing I remember, wake up in the hospital with a five-point skull fracture. They almost have to do brain surgery. My family always says, think what you would have been. Uh, anyway, um, 
And so what happens, I go over it, the doctor says, your head was like a basketball bouncing on the pavement. I slid to a stop on asphalt on my back. When I get to the hospital, they treat it by putting salt packs on the wounds. And the lady that helped from call the ambulance, and, and, and that, uh, the lady that pulled over to, to help me, she rolls me onto a mat before they get there that was formerly inhabited by her German shepherd. <laughs> so weeks later, I'm pulling little hairs out of the scat. And can I tell you, this was so painful. After I was finally released from the hospital, didn't die, didn't have to drill a hole in my head. After all that, you know, by God's grace, really, I'm, I'm, I'm home, I'm recovering. And I'm telling you, those wounds were so sensitive. Any kind of movement, the sheet on our sofa, we got this had a sofa, my dad bought a new TV with first remote control, awesome. So I could just, you know, three station. Anyway, uh, <laughs> wait, wait, maybe four. Uh, anyway, um, that sheet just barely brushed, and it sent me through the roof. When you've been wounded emotionally, it's like, it, it's how it is. The slightest memory, the slightest brush sends you through the roof. It brings that wound back. It's fresh again. And the beautiful thing about our bodies is that God's designed them to heal. And so over the coming weeks, the raw wounds turned to scab. Underneath them, fresh skin came. And to this day, if I took my shirt off, which I won't do, but if I took my shirt off, you would not see those wounds. You would see on one shoulder, you would see the deepest of wounds. It's now a scar. But here's the thing. I didn't even think about it. If you ask me about the accident, for sure I remembered. Do you remember where it hurt? Yeah, I remember you remember it. Yes. But now, catch this, I can touch it, and it no longer hurts. And if you've ever gone through a healing process, you know how it is. For it hurts like crazy, but over time it heals. And it turns into a scar. You don't forget, but it turns into a scar. Now, here's what I want you to catch. The decision to forgive someone can happen in an instant. But the healing, like a physical wound, takes time. And there will come a time, if you handle it well, where it becomes a scar. And you remember it, but it no longer brings the same pain. The question is, how does that healing take place? And here's how it takes place. It takes place as every time that pain comes back and you want to hold on to the hatred and hold on to the pain and you want to strike back as you release it each time. Every time you release it, you heal a little bit more. And the reality is when someone's hurt you deeply, you don't forgive once and it's over you forgive 10,000 times. But as you forgive, as you release it time and time again, that skin underneath the scab begins to heal. And there comes a day you remember, but now it's a scar and you've moved on and that pain is no longer the same. And this is so important for us to understand because sometimes you're talking to someone and you're like, well, it doesn't seem like you've forgiven. Well, no, they made the decision. 
They made a decision, but they're still in that healing process. And that healing process takes time. There is no shortcut. Now, let me say that. There are times in our life when God supernaturally takes away the pain. There's no question. Uh, Just like when someone comes to Jesus for the first time and they're a heroin addict, there are times there's people in this church that you were on drugs and you were addicted, and when you came to Jesus, it was instantly taken away, the desire. But that's not the norm. The norm is you're going to go through a recovery process. You're going to learn to surrender to Jesus a million times in that addiction, and you're going to get healed over time. So there's times where God will take away the pain supernaturally. It does happen, but the more common is that it's a process. Does that make sense? Okay, now, number six, the last big picture principle, and then we'll get practical. The last big picture principle, oh, by the way, before we go on, one quote from John Ortberg there that I really like. John's a great pastor. He's an author. Highly recommend his stuff. I like him. He wrote a book called Everyone's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. And I, I, ever since then, I've been a big fan. But uh, look at his quote. He says, the first stage, he says two things that are important. He says, the first stage of forgiveness is a decision not to try to inflict a reciprocal amount of pain on everyone who has caused hurt. Okay, that's right. First step of forgiveness is when we cancel the debt and we give up the right to hurt back. But notice what he says. He says it's the first stage. It's not the last stage. It is the first stage. And as we continue to give up that right, we heal until the pain becomes something that becomes a scar and we can move on. Now, number six. The, the, the next principle is that forgiveness leads to freedom. This is very counterintuitive. What naturally seems uh, true to us is that revenge leads to freedom, but the opposite is true, is that forgiveness leads to freedom. And so let's talk about this. Last week, for the most part, we talked about how forgiveness is a non-negotiable. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you can't choose who to forgive, who not. It's a non-negotiable. You want God to forgive you. You need to forgive others. And if you were here and you've been deeply wounded, and by the way, in all the examples I'm using in this, the last couple of weeks, I'm using big examples. And that's very intentional. Like we have to practice forgiveness in all kinds of things on a scale of 1 to 10, don't we? But I'm using the biggest ones because whenever I speak on forgiveness, it's not the little ones, it's the big ones that hold us back. The big ones are most important. So the same principles apply to the big ones, apply to the little ones. But last week, if, if you were here, I talked about how it's a non-negotiable. And if you've been wounded deeply in your life by someone, that it may have felt even harsh to you. It may have felt like that just seems like unreasonable that Jesus would require this of me. This is like so big. How could he ask? That is so hard. But here's what I want you to catch. Jesus never asks anything of us unless it leads to our freedom. Obedience is never arbitrary. It's not like he just chooses hard things, like, I'll just, this will be hard. See how they do. <laughs> Whoop, failed again. <laughs> Should have known. I guess they didn't know. It's God. Now, uh, no, no. When Jesus asks us to do something hard, 
it's always because it's going to lead to our freedom. It's why he, it's why he asks. Remember what Jesus said in John 10.10? He said, the reason I've come, he said, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Remember what Jesus said in John 8? He said, if you follow my teaching, you will know the truth and the truth will set you what? Free. See, his teaching always leads to truth. And catch this, the harder the teaching, the deeper the freedom. It's just the way it works. Can I tell you something? When Jesus, the heart, when you get to the end of your life and you look back and you say, what were the most transformative moments in your life? Without question, you will say, when I obeyed Jesus in this thing that seemed impossible and hard, it revolutionized my life. When, when you let the end of your life, you will not look back and say, it was the little obediences that made the big difference. It will be the big ones. It will be the hardest things that led to the greatest freedom. It is the deepest deaths that lead to the greatest resurrection. It's just the law of the kingdom. The deeper you die, the greater you live. When a seed falls into the earth and dies, Jesus said, it springs forth and brings life. It's the law of the kingdom. And that is so true in this area of forgiveness. Jesus is not asking you to forgive simply because it's hard. He's asking you to forgive is because it will lead to freedom. The opposite is also true. When you have been hurt deeply, there are only two options, two and only two. One is to hold on to that hurt, let the hurt turn into bitterness, and live for revenge. That's option one. Option two is to release the hurt and to move into forgiveness. There, there is no option three. There is no door number three. Like door number one, door number two. You got an option. And here's the thing. If you choose to hold on to the bitterness, hold on to the anger, and refuse to forgive, the end result is not life. It's death. And what will happen is the more time goes on, the more your life will revolve around the person who hurt you, and they will become the control person in your life. You come under their control. You know, when I was a boy, we didn't yet have drones that deliver packages. (laughs) Uh, What we had was two kinds of airplanes that kind of had engines and could fly. Uh, they, 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 had, uh, they, they had the kind of typical remote control planes that you still have today where, you know, you can, like, launch them and, you know, start them up and, and kind of take off on a runway, and you can control them with a the controller, and they're out. They're really cool. You know, they're flying on their own. They're really awesome. Uh, and so we never owned those. Very expensive. But my dad and I would sometimes go and watch people doing that. Uh, and then there was a second kind, you know, cheaper. I don't think they still exist today. No one would buy them. But um, at the time, you, they, they would have engines, they had propellers, they'd actually fly, but they had like a control wire to them. I haven't seen these in a long time. And so what happens, you start the engine, you start it up, and you start flying, and then you have to like start spinning around with it like this. <laughs> and if you, if you get motion sick like me, it's probably not for you. Right? Like I'm already dizzy right at this point. And, uh, and so what would happen, as you, as you spin around, you'd let out more and more line. Okay, so... It was really kind of cool from a distance. Like from a distance, it would look very much like the first kind of plane. Like, look at that plane. Good. It's just going in circles. That's weird. 
But if you get closer, you'd see that there's this, there's this wire, electric wire, going from the plane to the, the control box. And it's, like, it's not like a real plane. It can't really fly off into its future. It's really just kind of circling the control box. And this is how it is when we refuse to forgive someone. When we, forgive to, when we refuse to give someone, it's like there's an invisible emotional wire that goes from them, from us to them, and what happens is we circle their lives. We circle, and they become our control box. We think we're in control because we're going to get them back. The reality is they are in control of our lives. And catch this, the deeper we've been hurt and the longer we hold on to it, the shorter that wire becomes. And if you've ever known someone like this that's been hurt deeply and held on to for a long time, they have become an angry, bitter person. And if you know them very well, you know you cannot even be with them for any length of time if you're a close friend before they're talking about their ex, they're talking about the person that hurt them on the job, they're talking about the boss that got them, uh, got them fired, they're talking about the parent that molested them, they're talking about, they cannot escape it. Their life has come to circle the person in the control box. And so the reality is, if we want to move into the future God has for us, we have got to learn to let go of the past. We started the day with a story, it's a true story, of this woman coming home from the business trip early, coming down the hall, kind of breaking in, seeing her husband making love to another woman. I can't even imagine the horror of that. Some of you have gone through this pain. You've gone through the pain of affairs. Some of you have been unfortunate enough actually to walk in in a situation like that. I can't even begin to imagine the pain, the hurt, the sense of violation, the betrayal. I mean, it's just awful. Like a worst nightmare. You can understand why this memory was emblazoned on her brain. Why it was like an emotional tattoo on her heart. Couldn't get away from it. You understand. You understand the pain. But in the weeks and months that followed, she made the decision not to forgive and move on. And remember, forgiving doesn't mean, okay, necessarily come back. I'm not saying that. That's determined by other things. But she made the decision not to forgive. She made the decision, he hurt me, I'm delivering reciprocal pain to him. And it's a true, this is a true story. It's a story told by author, a lot of you know, Max Lucado. And in his telling of the story, he includes a letter from this woman years later looking back on her decision and the impact it had on her life. I didn't put it in your program because we were running out of space. <laughs> but I'm going to read it to you. This is an actual excerpt. Remember when I said her husband begged her to come back, promised to do whatever, and she was unwilling. And so this is her description. He begged me to forgive him, but I could not. I would not. I was so bitter and incapable of swallowing my pride that I could think of nothing but revenge. I was going to make him pay and pay dearly. I would have my pound of flesh. 
So I filed for a divorce, even though my children begged me not to. Even after the divorce, my husband tried for two years to win me back. I refused to have anything to do with him. He had struck first, and now I was striking back. All I wanted was to make him pay. And so finally he gave up. He married a lovely young widow with a couple of small children, and he began rebuilding his life without me. I see them occasionally, and he looks so happy. In fact, they all do. And here I am, a lonely, old, miserable woman who allowed her selfish pride and foolish stubbornness to ruin her life. And then Max adds this. He says, unfaithfulness is wrong. And again, we are not minimized. I can't even begin to imagine her pain. Unfaithfulness is wrong. Revenge is bad. But the worst part of all that is without forgiveness, bitterness is all that's left. Men and women, I want to challenge you. And some of you here, you have someone in your life who's hurt you deeply. And you've been making exceptions to the Jesus rule because it makes you feel powerful. It makes you feel like you're in control. You're going to keep them from getting away with something. You're going to hold on to it. The reality is the longer you hold on, the harder you hold on, the more angry you become, you cannot fly into the future God has for you because you are tied to a control box that's firmly rooted in your past. And so there in your note sheet, I put a couple quotes, one from John again, John Ortberg. He said, don't forgive and your anger will become your burden. Don't forgive and bit by bit all the joy will be choked out of you. Don't forgive and you'll be unable to trust anyone again. Don't forgive and the bitterness will crowd the compassion out of your heart slowly, utterly, and forever. Look at the next one. Forgiveness is setting a prisoner free and then discovering the prisoner was you. That's what I'm saying. Forgiveness leads to freedom. And then the last one by author Anne Lamott. Not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Okay? So forgiveness leads now. So now we've laid the groundwork. We've understood how forgiveness is a non-negotiable, no exceptions, what it is, what it isn't. We understand it's a decision that needs to be made, but it's a process to heal and finally, that it, it leads the door, the, the, uh, opens the door to, for, for, to freedom for our future. Okay, so now, having said all that, let me say this. That forgiveness is hard. It is one of the hardest things that we are asked to do. And I don't want to minimize that at all. And we're going to go into a time of teaching that's very practical. I think it would be very helpful. But I don't want to minimize. This is somehow going to make it easy. When I say these four steps, it's not like, well, they're going to be easy. I mean, counterintuitive, they're often going to be very difficult. If you're going to forgive, you're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit. He's going to have to mentor you. But I think these four steps will be very helpful in your journey. And so let's jump in. There in your note sheet, you have a section called Forgiveness 101, Letting It Go. And the first one is the longest one. We're going to spend a lot of time here. But the first step is to invite God in. 
The first step is that when you've been hurt deeply um, that, and, and you're super angry about it, and you're full of hatred or vengeance, whatever, that we need to invite God in to that situation. Now, especially if you're a follower of Jesus here today, we often don't want to do this. Because our life is such a mess at this point, we're so hurt, we're so angry, that we don't really feel comfortable inviting Jesus over for dinner, right? So, so what, what happens is that often we will pretend we're not angry, or we'll try to minimize what was done with us, because we think that's what a good Christian should do, or we'll wait until we try to get our act together before we invite Jesus in, right? So we're going to close the door to that room in our house, Kind of pretend, hey, Jesus, want to come over? We're going to pretend it's not there. Or we're just going to invite him over because the house is such a mess. But the reality is, Jesus already sees the mess. He knows you're a mess. He knows the mess. And so if we're going to win, we have to invite God into that situation before we get our act together. Just complete mess we're in. And so let's talk about what does it look like to invite Jesus in and I'm going to give you three sub-steps, all right? Now, just to make this clear, this is all under point number one. I couldn't make them several points, separate points, because we don't have enough room in the paper. So we're going to make a number So write in the margins, figure it out, be creative. But this is all part of point number one. So when I say invite God in, kind of three parts of that. Number one is you need to be honest about what's happened and how you feel about it. The first step to inviting Jesus in this situation is that you've got to be radically honest about what has happened. You have to call things by their true name. Remember what I said last week. Forgiveness is not minimizing. It's not excusing. It's not pretending. You can't forgive what didn't happen. So we need to be radical. If they betrayed you, they betrayed you. If they lied to you, they lied to you. If they abandon you, they abandon you. If they molested you, they molest. whatever happened, call it by its true name. Be very honest. God, this is what happened. Secondly, you have to be honest about what you feel about that. Right? Like we can't pretend. If you want to kill them, if your honest prayer is, God, let them hit a Mack truck, if that's kind of what you want, then you need to say that. Like, okay, you need to not pretend you're okay. You need to not pretend that I'm a, I got this covered. You don't have it covered. You're out of control. You're filled with hatred. You're filled with anger or whatever. You want them to get what they deserve. This is why step number one. We need to be radically honest about what's happened and how we feel. That's part of inviting God in. The second part of inviting God in is that we need to stop defending our anger. I want you to open your Bibles and look at Ephesians 4.31. This is the passage this whole teaching uh, comes out of, this section of Ephesians that we're in. But I, I want you to catch what Paul says on this topic. Chapter 4 and verse 31. Remember, this is a section Paul says if we're going to live an epic life, rethink our whole approach, put off the old, put on the new, seven illustrations, six illustrations, and here he goes, this is what we're to put off, verse 31. We're to get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, 
brawling, slander, along with every form of mouth. He says if we're going to move into our future, live an epic life, we have to put off anger and all the destructive attitudes and emotions that flow out of that anger. Remember when we studied anger a few weeks ago, we said anger is a good thing when it motivates us to do the right thing. Anger is a bad thing when it motivates us to do bad things. If your anger is motivating just to hurt back the person who's hurt you, it's a bad thing. And so we have to, after being honest with God about how we feel, we have to own it and stop defending it. And this is really hard to do. Because when we've been hurt, we want to believe we have the right to be angry. And this is a righteous anger. Because what's been done with me? But the reality is, if your anger is motivating you to hurt someone, it's not a righteous anger, it is unrighteous anger. And until we face that, admit it, and stop defending it, we can't let it go. As long as we're saying it's right, you can't let go what you think is right. And so, so catch this. When someone sins against us, when someone violates us, when someone commits an injustice against us, that is a sin of action. When we respond by wanting to hurt them back with bitterness and anger, that is a sin of reaction. And so we can't move forward while we're defending that anger. There's a couple of quotes there. Just for the sake of time, I'm skipping the one by Arch Hart. There's a short one by St. Augustine from the 5th century. He says, if you're suffering from a bad man's injustice, forgive him lest there be two bad men. So stop defending. The third step of this first point of inviting God in is that we need to ask God to change our heart. We're going to be honest how we feel, what's been done. We're going to stop defending, and then we're going to invite God and say, God, we need you to change our heart. Like, this is supernatural. The reality is when we've been hurt like this, very few people have the ability to let it go. Like, this is really hard stuff. Some of you have heard of a lady named Corey Tin Boom, a very famous woman who her, her family uh, hid Jews during World War II. And when her family was discovered by the Nazis, she and her family was in prison. They died in, in the concentration camp, but Corrie Boom made it through. And after that, God used her as an amazing kind of messenger for Jesus and his, his message around the world. Became a famous author and so on. But she tells an incredible story of as she's in, I can't remember where it is, but she's, she's out kind of teaching somewhere and there's a huge crowd there. And afterwards, they're standing in line to meet her, get her autographed books. And all of a sudden, she looks up and there is one of the guards who used to terrorize her and her sister in the concentration camp. Can I tell you, at moments like that, our willpower is not able to do what we need to do. This whole issue of forgiveness, it's got to be supernatural. Like, we don't have the power in ourselves to forgive like Jesus did. We need Jesus to give us his power to forgive like Jesus did. Like, we can't do this by ourselves. Remember when Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing, right? Like, we don't have the power. There in your note sheet, I put a, a great quote by Brennan Manning, who wrote the book, Abba's Child. And he says, the demand, oh, it's on the back of your note sheet. 
after three services, I've learned that. It's like, I can tell people aren't following. What's that? Oh, they're looking for it. Oh, okay, there we go. Back down. Okay, the demands of forgiveness are so daunting. In other words, what Jesus is asking is so big that they seem humanly impossible. The exigencies, which is a big word meaning the um, kind of the uh, immediate uh, kind of overpowering need. Uh, you might, might uh, call it the, kind of the urgent need. So the, the urgent need of forgiveness is simply beyond the capacity of the ungraced human will. I love this. Only reckless confidence in a source greater than ourselves can empower us to forgive the wounds inflicted by others. In boundary moments such as these, there is only one place to go, and that's Calvary. You see, like, these times in our life when someone's wounded us deeply, you cannot do this on your own. You need a supernatural work of God to come and free you and empower you to do what only God can do. Right? So the first step is we are going to invite God in. And what I mean by that, we're going to be honest about what was done, how we feel. We're going to stop defending it, and then we're going to ask God to change us from the inside out so we can be like him and release, give us the power to do what we can't do. That's number one, invite God in. Now, number two, we're going to let it go. That's part of this process. We've invited God in. We're processing. God is going to help us then as we ask him for his help. He's going to bring us to a point where we are able to now let it go. And remember what I said. Forgiveness is a process. So by letting it go, I don't mean that we just like, okay, it's gone and now I don't feel it anymore. I don't mean that. It's not about feelings. But remember what he said, forgiveness is like canceling a debt. And when you cancel a debt, there needs to be a point in time where you cancel the debt. Like if you go into the cable company or Verizon or whatever, you need to pay your bill, they give you a receipt. In the old days, they would stamp it. It's been paid. From that point on, a debt's canceled. It's a moment in time. Before they went like this, it wasn't canceled. Now it's canceled. It's a point in time. So remember we said that the, the forgiveness is a process, but the process starts by the moment we decide. And it's not a matter of feelings. We decide that we're going to pay. I want you to think of it like a court case. Imagine you've gone to court, and there's some kind of dispute you're in, and the attorneys sort it out, and they come to an agreement, and now you go to court, and you're going to sign the documents. The moment you sign the documents, that case is closed. You can't bring it up again, right? You can't go back to court again. It's closed. What I'm saying is in our lives, when someone is wounded, there needs to be a point in time where before God, we go before God and say, God, in your presence, I cancel this debt. Here and now, I'm signing my name. I give up the right to hurt them back. And I think it's very helpful to, when this day happens for you, you write it down in your Bible, you write it down in a journal, maybe you share it with some close friends. Now again, does this mean it's over? No, you're going to have to come back and forgive that over and over again. But there needs to be a first time. There needs to be a time you say, this, I am now giving this up. Now number three. Oh, by the way, um, well, that's good enough for that. Okay. 
Number three, the third thing is we need to, no, let me say this before I jump in. This is a little intro here. Uh, it's not part of two, it's an on-ramp to three. Uh, I want you to go back with me seven weeks ago. I want you to remember, at the beginning, seven weeks ago, we entered this section, Ephesians 4, 17 to 5, 2. And what I told you is that in the next seven weeks, we're going, to st- we're going to give six examples. Paul's going to give six examples of what it looks like to rethink our life, come into the school of Jesus, come under his leadership, let him be our rabbi. How to put off the old, put on the new, so he can be transformed, become like our creator again. So we can live out an epic life. What I told you seven weeks ago is that this is not going to be easy. This is going to be challenging. And it's going to be very counterintuitive at times. That what Jesus is going to say is very counterintuitive to what we would naturally think. But if you will listen, if you'll be open to the Holy Spirit, if you're ready to obey, if you follow him over the next seven weeks, you'll be a different person at the end than at the beginning. Well, today we come to some of the most counterintuitive teaching of Jesus. We're entering in the school of Jesus right now of how you deal with forgiveness. And the next two steps are going to be very counterintuitive. Remember, we're going to rethink what was black was white, what's white is black, the very opposite of what we would naturally do when we've been hurt. And yet, this is the path to freedom. And so here we go, number three. The third step is to pray for them. That after we've come under Jesus' leadership, we've invited him in, we've made the decision to release the debt, that now don't be surprised if one of the steps the Holy Spirit begins asking you to do is to pray for this person on a regular basis. Now, you say, well, I already pray for them. Yeah, but we're we're changing the prayer. (laughs) You say, what are we going to pray for? I hate them. How can I pray for them? It's not a matter of how you feel. It's a matter of what you do. Here's what you pray for. You pray for God's best for their life. Remember, to love someone means we seek their best. Now think about what this means. If someone's not yet come to Christ and what they've done is come out of their rebellion, their best will be to come to Christ, to meet him, to be changed. If they claim to be a follower of Jesus, where they are now, they claim that, and they're not acting like it, what would be best? To come into repentance, to come into his leadership. So we're praying for his best. We're praying for them to come under their leadership of their true king so that they can be forgiven, so they can be changed, and so that God could bless them. So we're going to pray for their best. Now, this is not something I'm making up. This is something that's coming from Jesus himself, school of Jesus. There on your note sheet, Matthew 5, says, But I tell you, love your whom? Love your enemies, or seek their best, and pray for those who what? Now catch this, not pray for those who persecuted you. Pray for those who persecute you, present tense. You say, I'm supposed to pray for that low-life husband of mine who's lying in court to get custody of the kids? 
Are you serious? I'm supposed to pray for my boss who is lying and putting false documentation so I lose my job? I'm supposed to pray for this man who molested my kids and is denying it to that day, this day and saying I made it up? Yes. And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Welcome to the school of Jesus. <laughs> what is black is white. What is white is black. This is going to be one of the hardest things you do, but it's one of the most important. It's like spiritual, physical therapy. Hey, when uh, I, I know it sounds like my life has always been a mess. <laughs> it's funny, a couple months ago, I, I was talking to them, I really want to go to Israel with you, but after listening to your stories for all these years, I don't feel very safe. I, <laughs> chasing the tornado and the motorcycle in Kansas is like, that's a five-year-old story. Can, I, can, can you let that one go? Uh, anyway, uh, but this story, I'll make it short, but through an athletic event, ill-advised, uh, I hurt my shoulder. And so I go to the shoulder, because I, I, I go to the doctor, because I can't really move my shoulder, and he says, yeah, you have a condition, it's called frozen shoulder. I'm like, are you a real doctor? <laughs> that is not how real doctors talk. They, t they give you a Latin term. You go home and look it up on the internet to see what it is. <laughs> and he's like, are you sure you're a doctor? Yeah, it's frozen. He says, what happened is you did all these micro tears in your shoulder, and then because it was so painful, you stopped moving it, and all those micro tears formed scar tissue. And so it's like you got your shoulder is locked up like by just th hundreds and thousands of little scars. And we need to, to go in, and we need to cut it open, and we need to blow it up. And we need to go and scrape it out with a scalpel. Okay, are you sure you're a real doctor? <laughs> so, so I go in, they do this surgery, I come out with this huge bandage, and my shoulder's really painful, and what do they tell you to do? It's like, immediately, physical therapy. Okay, I want you to do all these things. I want you a half an hour, every three hours, or something ridiculous. And to do any of these things is painful. And you're like going, are you sure this is good? You just cut open my shoulder, blew it up, scraped it out, and now you're having me move it? And if you've ever had surgery, you know this exactly. You would never guess this in a million years, that this is good. I'm sure at one time it wasn't like that. They'd say, wait two weeks, let the thing heal. But now we know better. It's very counterintuitive. Can I tell you that what Jesus is telling us is like spiritual, physical therapy. This is, catch this, the hurt that heals. And when you go and you pray for the person, something happens. And every time you pray, the wound begins to heal a little bit more. There in your note sheet, famous German author, he was a member of the resistance movement against Hitler, gave his life as a pastor. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he puts it like this. He says, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead for him to God. Jesus is not promised that when we bless our enemies and do good to them, that they will not despitefully use and persecute us. 
They certainly will. But not even that can hurt or overcome us so long as we pray for them. We are doing vicariously for them what they cannot do for themselves. Powerful. Now, number four, last thing Jesus tells us to do, again, counterintuitive, spiritual, uh, physical therapy. The last thing is to do good. Uh, So in other words, before he said, love your enemies and pray for them, well, in Luke's version, he changes it a little bit, or maybe it's a different occasion, more likely, when Jesus was teaching on the same topic. But Luke puts it like this, love your enemies, and he doesn't say pray for them, he says, do good to those who hate you. Not hated, currently hate you. Do good. Now, what's our natural response to those who hate us and hurt us? It's to do bad. Jesus says, oh, counterintuitive, school of Jesus, rethink, follow me, follow my example, watch me. Uh, No, we're going to do good to those who hate us. He's saying, are you serious? You really want me to bake cookies from my boss who hates me? Do you really, when they go in the hospital, offer to take a meal? Are, are you serious? You want me to serve them? That boss is over, are, you want me to serve him as if he's Jesus? And, and to really serve on the job as if for the Lord? Are, are you kidding me? It's like, yes. <laughs> Welcome to the school of Jesus. You know, that doesn't make any sense. You know, okay, well, how is your way working? How is that working out, that hatred, that bitterness? That, and how is that working for you? Uh, I feel like the line's getting shorter, and I'm going around a lot faster. Yeah. Okay, so let's try it his way. Let's follow, follow his thing. So, we're, so as we come under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we surrender. We say, God, you walk us through this. Don't be surprised if there are times where God says, I want you to do good. And what's going to be? It's like spiritual, physical therapy. It is going to hurt, but it's going to be a hurt that heals. There in your note sheet, C.S. Lewis, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. He says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Just act as if you did. As soon as we do, we find out one of the great secrets When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love it. If you injure someone you dislike, you'll find yourself disliking him more. But if you do a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. It's spiritual, physical therapy. And so as we come to the end of the seven weeks, kind of sub-series, section, here's what Paul says. You've been called to live an epic life. Jesus has come to live it. You are forgiven. You've been chosen before time began to make a You've been gifted to make a difference. And now, as you move in your future, the key to you need to rethink your life. You enter the school of Jesus. Let him lead you. We've just talked about. We're going to put off the old ways, put on new ways. We're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can become the people you are created to be, like your creator. So you'll have the capacity to live an epic life. He's given us six examples, but today one of the most important. And it's that when someone hurts us, instead of responding by attacking, we're going to learn to forgive 
and that forgive, forgiveness is going to lead us to freedom. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful to be here. We know that each of us here is here not by accident. And I know that all over this auditorium, God, there, there's got to be many of us here who struggle with major things, horrible things that have been done to us, not to minimize that at all. We have been betrayed, lied to. There's been affairs. There's been fraud. There has been uh, slander. Um, there has been uh, broken marriages that should never have been broken. There have been broken promises. And we have been wounded, God. And so many times we have responded in kind because we really thought that would empower us. And the, the, the reality is it has enslaved us. And so, God, we pray that today we'd come and surrender to your leadership. We'd rethink our lives. We'd listen to your teaching. We'd put off the old, put on the new, and be transformed. And, God, we pray that we would surrender to you as our leader and find the freedom that you died to give us. And so as we worship now, as we bring you our gifts, we pray you'd meet us in Jesus' name. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to ask you if this is your moment of surrender. We talked today, forgiveness is a process, but the first step, the first stage is a decision to let it go, to cancel the debt, to give up the right to hurt back, to, to push that across the table from you to Jesus. And so I'm turning over to you for you to deal with and to collect as you see fit. And so many times it's helpful to have a point in time where we surrender. And we'll have to come back to it many times as we talk, but we need that first time. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, my guess is for many of you, this is your day. This is your moment where you know it's been eating at you, whether it's a short time or for a long time. You've known that God is calling you to release this, and it just hasn't felt right. It's felt like if you release it, they're getting away with it, that it felt powerful to hold on and, and to get revenge, and yet you've res you're, you're understanding now it's not putting you in the control seat. It's putting you in the seat where you're controlled. And so today... It's an act of faith, but you're going to push it over to Jesus. And so I'm, I'm just asking if this is your day. Right here, right now, you remember always this day, this service was the day you released it. You gave up the right. And I want to give you a second right now as the band is playing, just to, before God, to say, God, this is my day. I want to push it over, cancel the debt. And I ask you to help me to forgive and do what I can't do on my own. And lead me and guide me every step of the way through the healing process. And God, all of this auditorium, you're hearing prayers go up and saying, God, help me. And we pray you would, that you would break every chain that you do for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And we pray as we wrap up this section of the series, God, that we would be a people coming under your leadership, a people that are really learning to rethink our life, putting off the old, putting on the new, entering in that school of Jesus, being transformed, that we can live an epic life. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we can clap, yeah. Amen. All right, a uh, couple things as we go. First of all, if you need more prayer, we've got an amazing prayer team. We'd love to just process, pray, hear what you're struggling with, pray with you about that over to my right against these walls. Secondly, next week we're kicking off a new kind of next section of Ephesians. It's a three-week section, and the metaphor is changing. Instead of uh, enter the school of Jesus, rethink, uh, put off the old, put on the new, it's a new metaphor of light and darkness. And what Paul's going to say is before we come to Jesus, 
that we're darkness. We're not just in darkness, we are darkness. And that something supernatural happens. We come to Jesus, we're changed from the inside out, we become light. And he's going to say, but the key to living an epic life is walking on that path of light, following the light where it leads you. And so for the next three weeks, we'll be talking about that. What does it look like to follow the light? Because as Jesus said, as long as you have the light, follow the light that you may become children of light. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. I love you. See you next week.